Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon, and I'm going to be interviewing Dan Driscoll in this episode. He is a former Peace Corps volunteer who has been living in Morocco for many years, and he's helping Morocco entrepreneurs who work in artisanal uh, field where they make handicrafts and things like that, get them to use technology to transform their lives. It's a fascinating use of QR codes, the way that he uses technology that can help people who are even illiterate. You have to see how they actually do it. It's amazing. We talk about the future of the Anu, how he's going to get himself out of the company so that they can run the company themselves. It's a really interesting discussion because you can see how he has to create a vertically aligned and a vertically um, functioning enterprise. It's not easy to do it, but he's pulled it off. And you really have to listen in to see how you can do good and still make some money. Anyway, listen into the discussion. You'll enjoy it. This is Francis Tapon with the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm here with Dan Driscoll of The Anu in coming in from Morocco. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I'm happy right now because I'm in Cameroon. I just got my water after four days of no water. We're here in the capital city. <laughs> And you would think that the capital, usually in most African countries, the capital city usually has water and electricity relatively reliably. It's the rest of yeah. the place that suffers. Yeah. But even here, and, and I, I only get water on Tuesdays and Fridays, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, so. that's pretty brutal. Yeah, no, I mean, I was in I was in Yemen. You know, I worked in Sana for about a year, and that you know that's the first capital slated to actually just run out of water. You know, so pretty, really? yeah, pretty brutal. It's supposed to be like twenty twenty eight. I don't know. When, and it's but. funny because you you hear like this the what's it called Cape Town has so much more press about them running out of water, running out of water. But in the end, when you actually read the fine print. They're allotting like I think thirty liters per person or something like that, which is for somebody who comes from the Sahara where you have worked in, thirty liters of water per person per day is like a lot yeah. of water. <laughs> pretty pretty generous. Yeah. And here, yeah. you know, this is like, ooh, we're really kind of tightening our belts here in Cape Town. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you have worked and in fact, I've been there. I didn't get to meet you when you were there, but I met uh, one of your co-conspirators there, uh, Tom Council and Council. Yes, that's uh, when correct. When you were in Figuig, which is, tell us a little bit about Figuig. It's really much, it feels like the end of the world there. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, so Figuig, yeah, it's a wild place. Um, it's one of the, it's the second largest oasis in Morocco and it sits um, almost on the most eastern point of Morocco, sitting on the Algerian border. Um, and what's a little bit unique about it is that it's kind of like this little enclave that pokes into Algeria. So you're constantly surrounded, uh, you know, you're constantly surrounded by Algeria um, with all kind of the border checks. So it's the closed border. Um, it's like but, a political island, effectively. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bizarre. I mean, we would we would go out and, you know, on hikes or go bike rides and we would, we'd get caught by the military, you know, because it's like, you know, it's just like a really strange, tense place. Um, kind of all wrapped up in the a beauty of a beautiful oasis as you would, you know, you would stereotypically imagine in the Saharan desert, you know. Would you say <laughs> that the Algerians are very bitter that somehow through probably colonial um, diplomacy that somehow Figui got carved out for Morocco? And I assume that's how it happened, or was there some other uh, historical I mean, basis? It's, I mean, I think it's 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 really complicated, and there's like a I think there's like a limit of what I can talk to about the Moroccan Algerian relations. But you know, with unique to Figuig, um, you know, they actually they really split it right down the middle. Where you know, when they closed the border, they actually had families you know get stuck on the other side, and they haven't been able to get back over since. You know, so it's really um, so. I so think are you saying there's a Figuig on the other side too? There was yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, there basically there's another town. I can't remember the name of it, but it's on the other side of the border. And, you know, they literally shut that border overnight and people were stuck on different opposite sides. You yeah. can really tell how closed that border is and how firmly closed it is when you, Dan, who's lived there for at least two or three years, don't even know the name of the neighboring town. I, yeah. Well, I, I technically did not, I technically did not live there. So, oh, I'm um, sorry. yeah. So I kind of, in the early days of a new, probably for the first I would say maybe three years, um, I floated around. I didn't really, I was kind of living um, a little bit nomadic and, and running around with- Did you have uh, your own camel? 
No, I did not, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering yeah. if the Peace Corps kind of covers the camel expenses. No, and say, I mean, okay. some, some, some volunteers did get like a donkey, you know, they'd get a donkey. Really? And they'd, yeah. They, they got they'd, a like, jackass? Absolutely. Yeah. They would, they would fill, you know, if they had like no running water in the village, they would, they would buy a donkey to kind of do the water runs every day or whatever. So yeah, cool. it wasn't uncommon. I'll put it that way. Most yeah, people, I mean, when I, they go work overseas, they get a car, but in Morocco, you get a jackass. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, so I didn't really, I didn't really, um, I didn't live there. I would spend extended time there. We we had originally built the first iteration of the website um, for a new, you know, Mark Lace will talk about. And then I eventually met Tom and Tom was the one who, he rebuilt um, the second iteration of the site, which we still continue to use today. But Tom has moved on. He moved to, um, after he finished Peace Corps, he moved to Thailand. Um, and yeah, he's, he's just kind of a globetrotter. So I don't know where he's at, at the moment. But uh, yeah, so he's moved on, on to different projects and it was a big focus of his Peace Corps time. Um, uh, when he was here for two years in Morocco. Okay, we we want to talk about kind of how t- Morocco's artisan is being transformed through technology. Yeah. And so give us a little rundown of some of the impact that the Anu, and by the way, the Anu is spelled uh, T-H-E and then A-N-O-U. That's correct. So uh, give us a quick, well, first of all, where does the Anu stand for? What does it, where does it derive from, the word? Yeah. Yeah, so the, the idea, like the basic concept behind the new, you know, is really twofold. You know, one, that we, we are an online marketplace um, where artisans themselves can post product regardless of literacy level uh, or geographic location. So if you were in a, a, a literate artisan in a rural village, you can use our platform. You know, you get like a small, um, either if you have a small smartphone or you go, you know, back in the day, you go to a cyber cafe and the whole interface is all symbol based. So, you know, in the past, uh, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer back in 2008, you know, I'd teach artisans how to use Etsy. And that would take about six months, you know, six months to get an artisan to master, you know, adding a product. And so we kind of simplified it all, kind of designed it around for artisans. Um, and it would only take about a day to kind of get an artisan up to speed on how to add their own product. So if you go to, you know, the new.com, you know, it kind of looks like an average, you know, your kind of normal marketplace, but all that content, all the products that are being posted are actually artisans themselves. So these are people out in the villages. So you'll see pictures of artisans holding product. That artisan was likely the person who actually add that product to the platform. So that's like a key part. So I mean, what I try and explain to people, you know, what does like a new do, you know, if you try and envision yourself, you know, like, you know, you're talking, we talk about kind of like these infrastructure challenges are living on the Algerian border out in the middle of the desert. What does it take for an artisan that may be illiterate to sell, you know, ship, sell and ship their product to, you know, anyone in the United States, you know, and get their product there in five days. Like think of all the logistical challenges around that. Those are things that we really solve. But the key part is, you know, which leads me to the second point is that all of that work, the end goal is that it's being done by artisans. So you have artisans that are, uh, you know, managing their own online store, but the administration of a new itself, the website is also being performed by artisans as well. So the whole goal is to make it fully artisan run and managed. So that's so this really the, is your big this is your big differentiator. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's like the most important thing to understand, you know. And so if you look at fair trade as a whole, uh, you know, there's you know, it's something called the 80 20 rule. And that is relevant for the fair trade sector. If you, an artisan works with a traditional middleman, so if anyone that's listening, you know, you go to Marrakesh and you see all these products that are put out in the marketplace, you know, artisans are only earning about 4% of what you pay in that marketplace. So it's a small fraction that goes to the artisans, why artisans are so poor. Um, and fair trade will come in and on average will only pay about 20% of that final selling price. So, you know, if you go to any kind of organization that works in the artisan space and you really press them and you say how much money is actually going to the artisan you're not really gonna get much deviation from 20 percent to artisan 80 percent to uh you know to the organization that that runs it and it's not that because that these artists you know these organizations or whatever are exploitive it's just that you know they're doing a lot of the work you know they do the work of photography they do the work of marketing they do all these different things that cost a lot of money to do and therefore 80 percent goes to these organizations so if we're really going to be serious about you know, solving artisan poverty, we're not going to get there by continually paying them 20 percent and then paying foreigners 80 percent to do this work, which is really kind of, you know, you know, physical labor in the 21st century will only get you so far. Right. So you artisans need to master, you know, these skills, whether it be marketing, photography, 
you know, all those kind of things that you think a business needs to, you know, needs to run, artisans need to do that. And so that's where a new kind of comes in, where, yeah, you have this marketplace, artisans can post their own products, they can sell directly, but all the administrative overhead, when we're dealing with uh, cooperative compliance law, uh, we, you know, just yesterday, an artisan and I were dealing with brokers for, you know, container shipping. Um, artisans are all kind of involved in all of that. And that's where, you know, for us, you know, where if you, if we kind of dive into our numbers, you know, 80, anytime you buy something off a new, 80% goes to the artisan on, you know, roughly an average and 20% goes to the new budget, which then just goes to pay more artisans to do the work of managing a new. So all the wealth that a new generates goes back into the artisan community. And that's really important because that's not what's happening in any other type of artisan business. It's kind of, you know, reinventing the wheel, something revolutionary, some new technology. And if you go down to the financials, it's 2080 again, and it's 20% maybe to the artisan, 80% to the organization, and nothing changes. So if you look at the artisan sector, you know, you know, in Morocco, prior to new, you know, even to today, I mean, the artisan sector declines by about 17% per year, like everyone's leaving, no one wants to be an artisan, because it's kind of, it's, you know, you are dependent on these outside people coming in to help you. There's not a lot of dignity in that work. Um, and so you're kind of seeing, uh, you know, the whole art sector here really implode. And I think it's almost beyond, you know, it's, it's barely on life support, right? And so when I look at my time, you know, I mentioned, you know, in Yemen, Yemen at one point also had a pretty vibrant artisan sector, but it's completely wiped out. I mean, the most traditional, uh, you know, artisan crafts that are essential to Yemeni identity are now being mass produced in China and imported, right? So, you know, that's that would be very, it, it would be a shame if that were happened in Morocco because the one major export that Morocco has is really its culture, you know, its culture and design. So, you know, those are why these things are, you know, so important. So that's kind of gives you like an idea of, you know, where the artisan sector is at today. Um, and, you know, at, in the past, it was kind of required because if you were an artisan out on that border of Algeria or you're in the middle of the Hyatt Mountains, you really had no access to anyone. You're pretty closed off. You're really reliant on a lot of these middlemen. But now, you know, in Morocco, you know, it's about 90%, I think, uh, 3G internet coverage now, right? So... You know, things are really radically transforming. Yeah, that is definitely true. And what is going on with the artisan when he, let's say, wants to ship a hundred dollar product? Let's say you go into theanew.com and you buy something for a hundred bucks. I noticed that it you shipping is usually included, correct? Correct. Yeah, we just included in the price. Okay, um, so eighty dollars, let's say that's eighty percent. That goes to the artist or the artisan, but he has to pay for the shipping, I assume. Well, the customer pays for it, right? So how it works is if you have a product um, and let's say, you know, you set your price at $50, you add it to the website, you set your own price. So all artisans on a new, they set their own price. We are not involved in setting the price for artisans, which is why you'll see some kind of some pretty varied price variants, you know, and we try and we try and mentor artisans. We try and give advice, but it's not our ability to set the price. Um, so they post that up at the price and they also include the weight of that item. And then when they put that weight in, the website will automatically calculate the shipping cost and put that on top. So let's say, for example, I have a $50 product. I'm going to, you know, uh, it's going to weigh 100 grams or whatever. Uh, it will cost me $10 to ship that to the United States. That price gets added. And you'll see that price then be like, you know, $60, you know, be like $60 and then plus the, you know, a new fee on top of that. So right, it all, all varies. Yeah. I understand that. But I'm just trying to calculate when you say... Because when you say that 80% is going to go to the artist, um, 80% of $100, let's say that I'm writing a check or whatever, doing a wire transfer of $100, sure. then that means but that there's shipping included in there already. Correct. So they, yeah. they've got to get less than 80% because I imagine shipping has got to eat at least 20%. Absolutely. Yeah, it okay. varies. It varies by product. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think I was just being... being um, pretty easy with the numbers, but yeah, you will have, it kind of will break down. So it's like, it'll be, you know, 20% will go, we add, yeah, it'll be at 20% and the shipping cost can run anywhere between 10, 20% of, of that product. But it depends on the, which way you ship it. So we ship via several different means. So we, you know, you can actually do express shipping. Um, that will be a bigger portion if you do standard and we also do economic shipping. And if you do economic shipping, then it's, it's, it's a smaller fraction. So it really, the, how the shipping fits in there, it, it runs a pretty pretty wide variance depending on which way you, you plan on having the item shipped. 
Yeah, because I was just thinking to myself, when I, if you self-publish a book, let's say on Amazon, Amazon eats 55% of the final price. That's so the, wild. Yeah, yeah, that's even if, that's if you pay for the book and you've made the book yourself, so you've paid the shipping and, and you ship it to Amazon for free, and then Amazon collects and they keep 55%. And the, now, let's say if you are doing an ebook, you, the artist keeps, in that case, 70%, the, the writer, should I say, gets 70% of the digital ebook. Now, if, now, let's say if I'm going with Random House as a publisher, then I'm only seeing about 10%, uh, maybe 20%, uh, but right, no, actually about 10% is going to the artist, maybe 15% on a good day to the writer. Um, wow, and I did not the, know that. Yeah, so the publisher takes, a, uh, basically, the bookstore let's say takes usually 40% of the book's value. And yeah. that's what, and, and the distributor takes about 20%. So that now you're up to 60%. So that means 40% is left to the publisher. And then, but the publisher is only taking, let's say 30%. And then that leaves 10% for the writer. Yeah, so 10% writer, 30% publisher, 20% distributor, 40% retailer. That's a pretty tough market. Now you know why it sucks to be a writer. Um, but anyway, all I'm, I'm, I'm just giving these economics just so that people can understand like that. Yes, it sucks that the artisan gets only, let's say, in your case, you said 4%, which is really pathetic. Um, but, but this model that all these middlemen start adding, 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 adding to the cost. Yes. Uh, and by the way, sometimes that cost is captured by the customer. In other words, when you go to Barnes and Noble and you see something's 20% off, well, then you just captured you, the customer just captured 20% of that. Correct. Yeah. I mean, well, I think the difference maybe between the artisan sector and maybe kind of publishing is that when you're in the artisan sector and you go through, like just go flip through Instagram, you know, and look for kind of foreigners in Morocco that are paying artisans, you know, pittance, but they're kind of, they're brushing it up as, look at like all this good we're doing. We put, you know, food on the table of Fatima or like, you know, whatever. So mm -hmm. there's a way in which I don't think Amazon's running around being like, you know, they, they may or may not, but like, you know, it's like, it's like, this is like the model that's how it kind of works. I think it's, you know, it is what it is, but it would be different if Amazon was going around saying we're changing lives and, you know, right. uh, you know, kind of painting it as this charity thing, but no one's really, no one's really kind of diving into the numbers on these things. And I think that's, I think that's a key uh, differentiator. I think that's something that probably um, needs to have more light shined on to it, particularly in the artisan sector. So how do you shine light on that? In other words, let's say, you know, the average consumer, he's just surfing around the web, he finds on this place, he finds a website that sounds like they're working with artisans. How do you know how deeply they're working with artisans and how do you kind of fact check that? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, I always kind of look at my kind of always rule of thumb, and, you know, is like, you know, I always tell people and advise them, you know, if you're going to buy something from an artisan group or, you know, through an artisan means, you know, ask who owns it, who owns that platform, you know, and if it's not artisans and you can generally assume um, that, you know, it's you're going to run into that same problem, you know, that's that's pretty, pretty involved. The, the frank reality is that, you know, I, I think if I had to put kind of a number on it, general consumers of artisan craft, maybe only really 10% of those customers are really going to do, you know, the actual work and really verifying, um, you know, are the artists actually getting paid? Is this actually an ethical way of doing work? It's a very small number of those people. And so, you know, we spent, you know, many years at new trying to kind of solve that question of like, how do we, you know, uh, how do we educate uh, you know, consumers about, you know, spotting these differences. And it was just like a really, it's like a pretty, um, it's a, almost like a dead end. And so we've kind of, you know, we always want to, through our marketing, um, you know, whenever we implement marketing in the future, our strategy will always be focused around education and, you know, uh, educating consumers about kind of the issues that people face in Morocco. But the reality is like, you know, I've kind of come to this conclusion that, you know, the, the reality is we should just not give people a choice. You know, like we should just be, you know, if you want to buy artisan craft in Morocco, then you just know that a new is going to be the best quality product that you will find. You will have a great experience buying it. Um, we just have to be the best when it comes down to logistics and material supply, things that kind of resonate with customers, um, you know, and that's what you have to lead with, not necessarily, you know, kind of the uh, social good of it, because the vast, you know, mainstream market does not, you know, d just doesn't care. And I don't know, uh, that's a pretty big uh, hill to climb to like figure out how you, you know, how you invent, invert those numbers, you know? 
And speaking about numbers, can you tell me about the numbers of wool exports that Morocco has and yet how hard it is to actually get wool for yeah. your Yeah, no, product? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's important for people to know, you know, and this we always try and we try and, you know, let as many people know is that, you know, most rugs that are, you know, sold in Morocco, if you go again to Marrakesh and you go to those markets, those aren't 100% wool rugs. Um, and it's, it's a really weird... Um, I don't know, like a cognitive dissonance in the two degree because Morocco is, you know, the sixth largest producer of wool in the world. Um, but they don't even crack uh, 1% in global exports. And you, know, you can't even find, it's very sometimes difficult to find actual real wool in Morocco because the, you know, uh, shepherds, you know, the wool industry in Morocco are the sheep industry, which is it's primarily focused around meat. So wool is actually a waste product of the actual core business that they do. Right. And so, you know, to go through and kind of build up that supply chain would be a lot of work and, you know, revenue for, you know, margins on artisan craft are so small that there's no incentive for anyone to try and figure out how to solve that problem. So you get synthetic material in a lot of these rugs. I mean, we only figured this out when we started doing our own in-house dye work. When we started dyeing wool, we get like some weird shifting or certain things wouldn't absorb dye. And it was because, yeah, it was a 30% synthetic blend. You know, we'd like confront, you know, a mill about this, a local mill in Morocco or, you know, a, a middleman who sells wool. And they'd be like, oh, it's it's German wool. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, no, I don't think that's that's it's synthetic. It's not German wool. There's no such thing as German wool, you know. <laughs> um, but there's there's countless stories. I mean, a really famous story in Morocco is um, there's a, a really popular product called Sabra. And, you know, if you go online, you look up Sabra, it's like, oh, you know, divorced women in the Saharan desert, they like hand select this cactus fiber and they turn into thread and it's, you know, it's as smooth as silk. Um, and it's built on this whole kind of, it's number one most, it's the most popular product in Morocco right now. But the reality is if you go and you dig deep a little bit, it's just rayon. Sabra <laughs> as a product never existed in Morocco. There was never any Sabra industry. So, you know, all of that, you know, kind of just kind of comes to the fold. So this whole artisan sector is kind of booming globally, you know, for Morocco, but it's, it's all kind of like, you know, it's all a lot of smoke and mirrors. And so those are things that really have to be changed. But, you know, if we're not really focused on the artisan and we're kind of continually focused on 4% or whatever, you know, we're just, you know, the, the market will just suffocate. So those are really important problems that need to be fixed. What is some of the biggest challenge for you running the business out there? Because I think you're the only foreigner involved in the ANU at this point. Correct. Yeah. I mean, we just we just recently, um, yeah, for for the longest, you know, since we started. So I started in 2012. So yes, I was the only foreigner. We just we hired a, a actual another former Peace Corps volunteer named Caitlin, and so she just joined us uh, several months ago. So now she's are you full time yourself, or are you just an advisor? Yeah, no, so I work, I work on this full time. Um, this has been my full time work for, yeah, since I started. So it's been my, my 100% focus. Um, okay. Yeah, so, but, you know, my goal, you know, is really to, you know, the original goal was really, you know, let's set this marketplace, artists can sell directly, but then we kind of really brushed up against, and this kind of goes to answer your question, was like really kind of the entrenched interest of kind of keeping the marketplace as it was. You know, I think we, you know, a lot of people that kind of work in the sector, I mean, I get probably contacted every week about who, someone who wants to start like a new marketplace, let, you know, art and sell directly. And I think it will revolutionize things. That's not the, that's not even the number one problem. You know, it's like it's actually one of the, the it's like the least complicated problem of what artists actually face. So, I mean, to give you an idea, um, you know, in Morocco, for example, artisans technically are not legally able to export product directly to customers globally. That's like a Moroccan law that prevents them from doing that. So, oh. you know, you are required technically. I mean, this is really complicated, but like some kind of I'm, I'm just making it simple. But yeah, you have to sell through a middleman. Like that's how the market is structured. So, yeah, you can talk about market access and, you know, we talk about this innovative stuff we do on the like language free platform. But like, you know, we as a new artists have to be organized enough to really challenge some of these kind of entrenched uh, systematic structures that prevent artisans from actually getting a foothold in anything like they're real problems and it's like i sometimes feel you know a little bit hilarious i'm like oh, i'm like this guy's like lived out in the mountains of morocco for six years and i'm like oh power this power that but that's really what it comes down to so you know what i'm trying to get people to understand you know about a news like yeah it's artisan run artisans can they come they join they work here they develop advanced skills the skills that <clears throat> you know organizations normally would take 
And then we use that to kind of organize artisans to challenging and start pushing what would be the Ministry of Handicraft, uh, you know, your your customs office, anything to start reforming a lot of this so that artisans can actually, you know, actually, you know, succeed in this kind of environment. That's really like, you know, and I mean, it's really hard to talk about those things succinctly, but that's really the number one problem. If it were really just market access, I would have I would have gone and left after a year. You know, I just didn't understand that. Like we solved the market access problem, we started peeling back more of these layers. So it's, you know, so it's, it's like, you know, one part, you know, really large part of that is like, how do you then get artisans themselves who, you know, our team, we have 10 artisans, which are like the exceptional artisans from our community of about 600 artisans. Um, they are the ones, you know, that we have to kind of build up and, you know, one, like have the ability to kind of challenge a lot of these, these, cha- you know, these problems, but, um, you know, just, just, you know, to, to not be scared to even do it, you know, like that's really, really difficult. Um, and I would say another massive challenge slightly related to that is that, you know, we have to do that in this environment in which, you know, there are so many people coming to Morocco to save artisans and do things for them. And if like that keeps continuing, the artists won't get the skill set to really challenge what things are really happening here. It really benefits, you know, people of power, you know, within some of these ministries um, that foreigners come in and they kind of just do the work because it keeps, you know, the local citizenship, you know, poor and unskilled, you know, and therefore things can't be changed. So those are things that really have to be um, thrown upside down. And that's really kind of the core work that Anu does. Um, and it's also the most challenging thing that we have to deal with on a daily basis. Um, I mean, I could just go for days, you know, just like the absurdities of all this. But um, yeah. How is the QR codes, which are these two dimensional barcodes, how have they, how, how have you implemented them and how has it affected the technology of? Uh... Yeah, great question. Well, like, you know, so for example, um, I mean, this was kind of given a, a, a uh, one of the challenges that we've had, you know, we, we primarily in the past would sell directly to consumer, like B2C. So, you know, you come to a new, as an individual, you buy something, the artist will ship it to you. Um, and that's that's always, you know, kind of been our number one focus. But for us, you know, we're kind of looking at how do we kind of challenge some of this kind of this, you know, the systems and how things work in Morocco. It's hard to um, ignore the fact that the majority of product that's being bought in Morocco are usually coming through larger companies. You know, it'd be brands, whatever. These, again, it might be American companies, European companies coming in here and buying product in mass. Um, and that's really challenging because, you know, in the general marketplace, not even the artisan sector, it's kind of like, you know, you expect you're going to get wholesale pricing. So wholesale pricing, meaning I will come in, I will buy X amount of rugs instead of just one, but I expect 50% discount on your listed price, right? But like that's not, you know, if you're if you are running a widget factory, it makes sense to do wholesale pricing because you're going to optimize, you know, your uptime of your machines. But artisans aren't machines. Right. So we want to engage with some of these companies. We want them to to support a new we want them to work directly with artisans, but we can't negotiate on price. We don't set the price for artisans. The artisans set it. Right. So for us, we have to be incredibly efficient um, so that when someone comes to us, that we say, well, we can't give you a wholesale price, but we're going to make it as easy as possible for you. We're going to simplify all the logistics of getting, you know, you know, when the artisan completes that rug, we're going to get that to you. And a big part that companies want to see is, you know, they want real-time updates. They want to know what's happening with their order of 100 rugs they just put in. And so we need to figure out how do we get artisans, you know, out in these rural villages to provide timely and easy updates. So we, we've explored uh, many different things would be like text messaging. We would do weekly follow-up phone calls. We'd utilize like, you know, things like WhatsApp and get artists kind of sending pictures. Um, but, you know, any, it's just, it, it's it's hard to underestimate the limited bandwidth of, you know, someone who's just using technology for the first time. So, you know, anytime someone's going to interface with technology, you know, like an artisan, um, they can really only do a step or two, you know, like I can, you know, they can, they have like a, you know, they can, they can press two buttons before I think they start Their to max out. Full. Right. Exactly. So for us, what we want to do is simplify as much as possible. So one of the things that we've implemented in the last couple of months is now we have a QR code system. So if you get, you know, a company comes in, they put in an order for, you know, rugs, um, you get a piece of paper with a QR code on it. And all the artist has to do is use their smartphone and they can scan that using the camera app on their phone. Um, and then it will basically take all the data of, you know, of that rug and automatically um, upload it 
to our database, which will automatically notify these companies or customers that we work with. So if you go to a new, and you can experience this if you go through and you do a custom order on a new, you know, you go ahead, you bought, you find a product that you like, you can change the dimensions on it. And then what will happen when you put in that order, we then send out, well, if it's like a color, I mean, let's say it's a rug, it has colors in it. We'll have artisans at our headquarters dye that work. And then when we ship out that wool to the artisan, you know, the cooperative that's going to make it, they will get a, a kind of a spec doc. We'll have that QR code. And that's all they do as every day as they, you know, produce that product. They scan that QR code. They take a picture. And it's like a three-step process. And then that picture will be automatically sent to a customer. So a customer can see these things happening in real time. So if you're a larger client of ours and we aggregate that data and try and put it in a simple uh, database that they can monitor and see how these things are happening. So what we tell them is like, you know, to a company, we say, you know, yeah, we don't do wholesale pricing. Um, but what you can tell your customers, obviously, is that you're paying, you know, you're paying well above market wages, you know, for this work, um, supporting kind of the revival of Moroccan craft. But it's also going to be really easy. So you can go to Marrakesh, which is what mo still unfortunate what a lot of people do. Um, you know, 70% of people who come to Morocco only go to Marrakesh. There are no artisans left in Marrakesh, which is a big misconception. And so, you know, these people come in, they work with middlemen, it's really convoluted, they get exploited, it's like a really weird, you know, it's kind of like a mess. And so we say, you can go do that, and, you know, you can exploit artisans, contribute to that, have a miserable time, you know, managing all those orders, or you can just work with us. And, like, we'll have artisans use, I think, kind of the most advanced technology that there is to just give you simple updates and know what's going on. Right. Does that make, right. that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. But although I would, I kind of push back on the idea that the artisans that are in Marrakesh are being necessarily exploited. I mean, it's a strong word just because I think they are selling it at a price that they're willing. Nobody's holding a gun no. to their head saying you got to sell that this is, thing for $10. That is incorrect. That is incorrect. And the reality is because when you, it's, and this is like, I have to explain this to my parents. My parents don't even really believe me. <laughs> but, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, it's very common when we meet a new cooperative that, you know, is joining a new. And, you know, it's not an open platform. So we have to we have to train them and we meet with them. We verify that they're, in fact, artisans. And, you know, obviously key questions we ask are, you know, how do you sell your product? What's going on now? And a lot of these artisans... You know, you know, it's it's not uncommon that the middlemen that they work with will only pay them in more material to make more product. They do not get paid in cash, right? Because they don't. It's like if you're illiterate, you don't understand like how a market should actually function. You don't understand what your rights are as a person. So that is really common. And so it will even happen. Like we will have artisans when they make their first sale in a new. You know, they will call, you know, one of the artisan leaders at the office, you know, on the verge of tears being like, you know, am I going to go to jail? And we're kind of like, no, like what, what's going on? They're like, well, I didn't know that we were allowed to make money. Like we have money in our account and I'm afraid I'm going to go to jail because we have money in our account. That is not uncommon. So, you know, it sounds like really irrational and like really bizarre. Um, but that is like the norm. And I think, it, you know, I don't know if it's just like a reality of working in, um, you know, illiterate areas. I mean, Morocco and rural Morocco, it's 50 percent illiteracy. I don't know if that's really common in other countries at that level, um, but it's a massive problem here. And it leads to exploitation. I would even say that, you know, my biggest shock as a Peace Corps volunteer living in Morocco, you know, what's like the one of the major things that I've I've it's kind of really shook me or things that kind of I was really you know, kind of woke up to is that like just how easy it is to exploit someone who is illiterate. You know, they just have to trust you. You know, if I give uh, a, a woman, you know, a weaver, for example, like I'm going to pay her uh, 400 Durham, you know, 30 bucks and I put the cash into her hand, she will not know what that amount is. She has to turn either she has to trust me or she has to go to a family member and be like, is this actually what I think it is? Right. So. You know, but yeah, that's, there are that's other really that, I don't know if illiterate is the right term. It's really economic illiteracy because sure. usually absolutely, I, I mean, I, absolutely. These Africans, yeah. they don't they are a lot, a lot of Africans are illiterate, but they know what a dollar is. Yes, absolutely. So I think it's then more, you know, more a, a convergence of multiple problems. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, so that I think is really all pretty shocking. And I think that that is really common. Um and it I don't think it's really well known. Me when I'm in Africa, sometimes you know, I'll meet all sorts of literate children, that kind of stuff. But 
the most illiterate child will know that five plus seven equals 12. Yes. They know the yeah. most basic math and, and they know that these little pieces of paper that we call currency actually have a value. And, you know, they Correct. know basic math. They don't know how to subtract. They don't know how to divide, but they know adding. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, no, I guess they sure. do know how to do subtracting because they know how to give you change, too. I mean, it's so yeah, funny. Well, there it's, you go. So, yeah. So um, that's that those skills are, you know, um, in short supply in a lot of villages in Morocco. And so that's where it just, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, yeah, so I'd really say, I mean, again, like, yeah, because it's so extreme, um, you know, kind of dropping words like that. So I totally get your hesitation. But like, you know, yeah, I see it. I see it all the time. And um, yeah, it makes me very sad, you know. Now, are uh, the deals in a new, how do they compare to, let's say, somebody's going to shop around either through Marrakesh or more likely, let's say they're just surfing on the web and they're trying to buy something through Etsy, yeah. which is kind of like a eBay or... I assume Great. that China has displaced all these artisans because they sell them for cheaper prices. So I imagine that if somebody wants to buy a wool rug, the best thing they can do is if they want the cheapest deal, they're going to have to, they'll buy it through some sort of Chinese operation. Yeah, I mean, you can, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you see, yeah, there's definitely been some displacement, you know, when you go through Marrakesh, you know, there's like increasing numbers, you'll see, um, you know, kind of kind of affects certain parts like um, lighting, um, kind of brass work, a lot of that, you're kind of seeing a lot of kind of Chinese encroachment um, in mass manufacturing. Um, but it's not, I, I wouldn't really describe that as like a massive issue. I think, um, you know, it may be kind of a, you know, something of what's to come. Um, but I'm, I'm just but, trying to get to the idea that whether people go to a new in order to get a deal or they're really saying, okay, it's kind of like buying recycled toilet paper, recycled paper towels. In other words, you <laughs> yeah, know, you're paying no. a premium, but, but, uh, you're doing it for the better of the planet. Yeah, no. And that's, I mean, this is like a really, a really good question. Um, and it's probably one of the biggest challenges that we have to deal with. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, the most, uh, like a popular size rug is an eight foot by 10 foot rug or a metric that's, you know, 300 centimeters by 250 centimeters, roughly. I'm just kind of doing the math on top of my head. Um, you know, if you, you, if you pay an artisan, you know, an artisan cooperative to make that and you count the hours of the work that goes into that, you know, you're going to come out at a minimum, at a minimum of about $800 in, you know, work, you know, work. And that will include uh, material costs as well. And so if you go into Marrakesh um, and you go to a market, um, you can find an eight by 10 foot rug or, you know, 300 centimeter by 250 centimeter rug um, for as low as, you know, $150 or 1500 Durham, right? And what's interesting about that is for the material cost to make an eight by 10 you know, foot rug, you're, you're running around like a thousand to 1500 so I'm jumping currencies, about $100 to $150 for that material cost. So these things that you're finding being sold in the Marrakesh Medina or the old city of Marrakesh barely cover the cost of material, and which is why it's not uncommon that you will find many artisans uh, that lose money on sales when they give, you know, they sell a product to a middleman in Marrakesh. And that makes it even more complicated because right now, you know, Etsy is going through this explosion because Etsy, you know, went through their IPO. They switched over to CEO. They're moving away from this idea of trying to work with authentic artisans. And now you're seeing the Etsy marketplace be flooded with all these middlemen who are paying artisans, you know, nothing. Um, so you can find a large rug, you know, a nice one uh, for, you know, 200 bucks on Etsy, 250 bucks. So for a new, if we want to just pay minimum wage, I mean, again, minimum wage in Morocco, you're already at, you know, $800, right? So, you know, if these people on Etsy are these kind of like Instagram brands that you see, and there are a ton of them, and I see them all the time, you know, they're talking about how we support artisans, we pay artisans, you know, artisans really well, but they're selling that product for $400. $400. So I don't know what they're talking about. That's not physically possible, right? So, you know, there's a really difficult challenge so people when i say like yeah you buy through a new you're going to buy directly from artisans they assume it'll be cheaper than what you'd find on etsy but it's actually not we will be like three times more right so that's a really difficult immensely difficult challenge to solve um and that's where it comes down to you know where technology for us plays a really key role in terms of operational efficiency uh quality control over materials that's how we can kind of separate because otherwise like you know just the economics of it doesn't make any sense like how could you how could a middleman you know get away with selling something for 150 dollars when it really costs 800 dollars to make does that make that make sense 
Yeah, and later on this year in 2018, you are planning to make a major announcement. And you give us a little preview of how that is that you're going to try to change the operational quality and consistency of yeah, the operations. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, what we are planning on doing is we, you know, we've been building out kind of our in-house supply chain of wool. So we are having, we probably have about a hundred women um, that are hand threading wool out in the Highlands Mountains of Morocco. Um, and we kind of certain rugs that we do, you know, we get custom orders for, we will kind of have you know, we will use this kind of hand spun wool that we control everything. Like we will actually shear, you know, we've had people, we've like sheared our own sheep. We work with shepherds in these areas where I serve as a Peace Corps volunteer. Um, and now we're trying to, we want to scale that. So we will be opening up our, uh, a fully fledged mill in Ait Bugamez, which is in the middle of the High Atlas Mountains. Um, so that we can kind of, you know, control the entire, you know, vertical of material production for any Moroccan rug. And so why that's is this something- important? Well, it's incredibly important because, you know, I think tying a little bit back to what we talked about before, um, you know, important for listeners is that, you know, it's about ensuring that the product is what people say it is. You know, you get away with, you know, selling a rug for $150 because it's not actually uh, 100% wool. It's maybe a 70% wool that's using a really um, a sheep breed in Morocco that's not even it doesn't even have like a fiber length that's like well suited for uh, weaving. So you get really excessive shedding in a lot of these rugs that you buy. We get complaints all the time from people who um, buy a rug in the Medina and they come to us later and like, what do we do about this? It's because they use, you know, a really cheap wool from a city. Um, and those are things that really need to be fixed. Otherwise it, you know, it tarnishes Morocco's reputation as, you know, as a, as a, uh, you know, as a, I, I hope like a, world-leading craft sector. Um, but it also so tarnishes the eyes and the health of the artisans themselves. I mean, you can talk about the absolutely. effects of seeing what formaldehyde does to some of these artisans when their eyes get all swollen. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, that's where we kind of, that's where we stumbled all into this was, you know, once we started doing a lot more, um, we do a lot more creativity work, which is a whole other thing we could talk about um, and getting artisans to create their own designs. Um, we had to kind of start mastering color and we had to start figuring out how to dye. And we would work with traditional dyers where most, if not all wool in Morocco is dyed. And, you know, to cut corners and costs there, you know, to keep that your margin on a $150 rug, um, they use formaldehyde as a mortising agent. And what that means is that, you know, when you take a dye and you, you soak wool into it, you need that dye to bond. So formaldehyde is a really great way to do that really quickly and cheaply. Um, and artisans get allergic reactions. They will have their eyes swell shut. Um, they, on average, artisans get sick more often than you know, the average population because what the materials they have to handle. Um, and all that stuff is hidden, you know? And so we really have to, we can't really, you know, we can't really trust anyone, you know? Like we must know from, you know, from the sheep, you know, itself, all the way to like the rug that's arriving at a customer's doorstep. We want to be able to control all of that. Um, and that's like a ma- you know, massive focus. Um, and I think one of the key reasons why we're moving in that direction. You know, but I'd also say that you know, it keeps on providing more. We can take kind of our uh, ability of technology to simplify a lot of this work. So for example, when we open up the mill, uh, the plan will be that it will be all run and staffed by artisans from the new community. So whether you are semi-literate, whatever, um, we will design kind of the, the workflow in this place for these people to succeed. So artisans that, for example, in a slow season, they need additional work, they can come work at the mill or they can come work at our dye shop. Um, so they don't feel the pressure to have to work with middlemen who will pay them you know, nothing or essentially kind of take their product for free. You know, so When, when this mill comes online in uh, December 2018, do you expect this to have an impact, maybe a 10% decrease in the prices to the customer? Uh, I think, yeah. I mean, what we, our plan is to do um, is that we will provide the wool that we generate from that mill will be provided to a new artisans at cost, right? And then we will sell these services to other people at a margin. And we will use that, you know, that's where we'll get, you know, that's how we'll turn it profitable. But for the most part, for any artisan that is in the new community, we'll get that material at cost, which will provide cheaper prices and help artisans really compete against, you know, their competitors who have optimized their labor costs to, you know, essentially zero, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I think that will have an effect on price. Um, uh, what would it mean in terms of, a, you know, what would be the cost of an 8 by 10 foot rug? Um, I haven't really run the numbers on that. We'll kind of see when um, we are operational. But, but it, should uh, have a, it should have a positive impact for the customer. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, anything that doesn't have formaldehyde in it, I think, is always going to be a positive out, you know, outcome for the customer. Especially if you've you got a baby rubbing their face in it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's it's terrifying. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I see all these things trending on on Instagram with little kids, and I'm like, man, I would not want my kid on that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, what uh, do you see the future? Let's say if we project out into the year 2020 and then 2030, what do you see the future for the Anu? Well, I would hope that we, you know, that we would be large enough. Um, well, a couple things, you know, one is that I would, I would like to see, you know, I don't, I don't know in the time frame, but yeah, sometimes in the 2020s, that a new is really, you know, I'm no longer an integral part of uh, the work that we do, um, and that majority of it will be being done by artisans. Like we're still kind of building up the capacity, um, you know, taking on more and more of the roles and responsibilities, and those kind of tie into things like English language learning um, quite a bit. So that's that's you know where I hope we'll be. Um, that's always the goal of what we do is really to kind of you know run it where it's 100% artisan artisan run. Um, the second thing that I would really like is I would hope that. You Hold know, on, sorry, I'm, one second, Dan. Sure. Uh, just to interject there, in Sub-Sahara, you have in the Sub-Sahara you have a lot of distrust among the Sub-Saharans themselves. Uh, Africans really, you know, they can be very, very, very tribal, and they kind of like it in some ways. It's perverse in a bit, but they almost like it when a white man is in charge, you know, some foreigner, because they trust that person will be equitable. Then rather, I've had many people, they, they said, you know, for example, in Tanzania, for example, they said the, the best person to work for is a white guy, a European, second worst is an Indian, and the worst is to work for an African, because the African <laughs> will exploit you, they'll, they'll pay, they won't pay you, the, the, the foreigner will, will, will be much more reliable as a, as a job, and much more fair, and that's the key thing, fair. So uh, getting back to you and the Anu, I'm wondering if... In Morocco, even though I spent three months there, I don't, I didn't get a sense of whether the same kind of, you know, kind of like that have a nice referee, basically. And for yeah. you, Dan, you're kind of like the referee. You're not going to screw, if you're going to screw them, you're going to screw them all over. What they're worried about is that they're going <laughs> to, they're going to, you know, yeah. that one guy who's an insider is going to just play favorites and, and, and be tribal. Do you, yeah, do you no, think that that's think, one reason they're keeping you on there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that is, I mean, one, that's an excellent question. Um, Sorry, one more big... thing. Let me let me interrupt you one more time. Sorry. Sure. Uh, I'll give you one last anecdote. Uh, this is from an Italian man who's worked for a 40, no, sorry, 30 years. No, 40 years. Anyway, 30 or 40 years in Cameroon, northern Cameroon, the extreme north of Cameroon. And he's yeah. a doctor. And yeah. he has been there for that much time. And now he's, he's now 70 years old and he wants to retire. They've gone through not one, not two, but three doctors so far. And every single time the doctor they think is a good doctor, he's a Cameroonian local. And then he ends up saying, you know, give me $400 extra for the surgery. He wants to be, you know, he's constantly trying to get side deals. And so once again, the people come to the Italian doctor because they know they won't, the Italian doctor won't ask him for bribes. They'll tell him, you know, they won't invent anything. And so again, there's this higher trust to the foreigners than to themselves. Yes. Um, no, I mean, I think it's a great question. Um, that's actually probably one of the, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a massive challenge. And, you know, but the, Thing is, is that the reality is, I mean, I will guess in Morocco, I mean, like no Moroccans really trust other Moroccans. You know, it's like, you know, people kind of throw out theories like, oh, it's like, you know, like some kind of forms of like tribalism, whatever. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's a problem. I mean, that's so like this probably is a pan-African the, problem. In other words, a lot of times people think of this is just a sub-Saharan thing, but it's really pan-African. It goes all the way to Morocco. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that that concept is real here. Um, and it's what makes, you know. But what I would say to that is like, you know, like, yeah, like that's a real problem. Um, but that's not an excuse to, you know, not solve it. You know, it's kind right. of like, you know, it's like they it's just kind of it's really, you know, you find where people, you know, you have like foreigners that come in, particularly in the art sector. And it's like, oh, look, like I'm so needed, you know, like, oh, like, look at us, like, look at, you know. And it's like that's not a model for development. And the reality right. is like, you know, yeah, like me as a as a, you know, like a white person serving as arbit arbitrator, that is like a sign and that's like a crutch for like good institutions that, you know, can manage, you know, those 
you know, kind of those relationships. You know, that's so one of the things that were. So how do you make yourself were, obsolete, Dan? How do you kind of get yourself well, out of this, this role? Because I, I, I yeah. sense that's what you're saying in the 2020s, you would love to step aside. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, well, that's where, you know, probably, you know, it's interesting, you know, I kind of mentioned a little bit before, you know, we don't really do any marketing, hasn't really been our focus. Um, because what we're really kind of building is a lot of, you know, it's kind of like our own internal institutions to make a new work. Right. So those are like the really key things that we work on. I mean, like, for example, um, you know, one of the most under, you know, reported or, you know, not really known problems is actually corruption within these cooperatives and the exploitation of a president of a cooperative of its own members. And that corruption um, directly correlates with how many relationships that cooperative has with these foreign brands. Right. It's a massive problem. So you come in, you know, this foreigner thinks, oh, look, I'm, I'm so needed. Um, I, I kind of help paper over these issues. Uh, you know, this is really good. And I'm, I'm going to help these women. Well, the president's like, this is great because this person's not going to do any check work. And I'm just going to basically pocket all the money and no one really know. And because of that exclusive relationship between the president and this foreigner, you know, the members have no ability or power to put that person in check. That is like the status quo, I think, for most cooperatives. And so what we do is really, again, how do you build, you know, kind of the infrastructure to kind of create transparency within these cooperatives where we can kind of take away, you know, the elements that lead to a lot of that distrust and where people like a foreigner is needed. And to give you an example, you know, we would have... Um, you know, right now, like it's still kind of like in the early stages of it, but we now automate the accounting for artisans and the product that they sell and the materials that they buy. So for, so if you sell a product, um, it actually you, you know, how that breaks down, how money is distributed. Um, I'll give you a quick kind of couple things. Like for example, if something it sells on a new, um, all the members who are tagged into making that product get a text message with the amount that product sold for on a new. So not one person has the knowledge to what that price is. And that creates like a level of trust that did not exist in a lot of cooperatives before. On top of that, you know, we now, when those things sell, um, yeah, you, all that is being recorded into um, each individual account on a new, they get, a, they have their own budget. And what they can do is at the end of the year, all cooperatives are required to get, um, you know, audited by an independent accountant. Um, they, they just, you know, they'll, it's not quite at this point, but they'll just be able to push a button. It'll print everything out. Everything will be kind of um, independently, you know, uh, um, compiled. Um, so like what would happen in the past would be like, you know, you sell a product, you know, you, you know, you can kind of flub what you report, you know, oh, we sold this rug for 500 Durham, but you actually sold it for 10,000 or you sold it for a thousand. So you can pocket 500 with a new, that's not possible. All that information that we record when you buy it on the site is being recorded somewhere. Um, and we actually now are giving access to that, to the legal team at the ministry of handicraft. So if there's a dispute, you know, which happens quite often amongst cooperatives, um, what would happen in the past, like, you know, they would, a dispute would happen, um, all the financing and the accounting of this groups, because of any of these people, again, financial literacy, not very high, you know, the ministry, the legal team couldn't like resolve it. They wouldn't know what was actually happening. Um, and now what we do is that there's a dispute, they can reach out to us and we can provide all the data of sales on uh, materials that these groups have bought, um, to the ministry. Um, and they can use that information to resolve those disputes. Right. So that sounds a lot better to me than having like a foreigner, you know, a benevolent foreigner um, who is actually, you know, profiting from these businesses, you know, you know, like that, that doesn't, that's not a long-term strategy. Um, and so we have to really look hard about how do we actually solve these problems and like really get real about them and that it's not all glamorous. It's not all about, you know, look at all this good I'm doing for these people. These people are real human beings. They're complex individuals and they will, you know, they will do as humans do in any kind of environment, particularly in an environment that's low resource, for example. So we really need to, you know, a new is really about, you know, how do you kind of build, use technology to kind of build a lot of this infrastructure to kind of keep, you know, some semblance of normalcy um, and trust so that like, yeah, like when I step out, it doesn't really matter because all these systems are all there. They're all kind of, you know, they're all there working for artisans. They have knowledge. They can kind of hold each other to account. Um, and that ties into how we operate, you know, at our office. You know, we, you know, these these 10 artisans that, you know, kind of help manage, uh, that manage anew, they rotate. So they will work, you know, a one week shift or two week shift or a four week shift at the office. And the point of that is really to decentralize knowledge, not, you know, one, I want to build the capacity of everyone, but then that no one person 
has enough power to hold leverage over other members. And so we, you know, it prevents politics from infiltrating even like our internal, you know, team at a new. Those are all things, everything that we do is kind of built around that. And like, how do we build the infrastructure for artists to succeed in an environment where like, I'm not there, right? Again, really complicated. That's why it's taken so long. Um, but I mean, I really wish, you know, that, you know, a lot of these brands that are kind of doing work in Morocco um, would understand this, you know, but they don't because it's, it's just so easy to like, you can fall into the warm glow of like all these people who, you know, you, you feel, you feel necessary, you feel important. And that's not, that's not good for anyone. It's not about, it's not about you as a benevolent foreigner to come in here and save people. You know, it's about actually solving the problem. And when I tell people about this, you know, particularly these brands, it's kind of like, well, artists can't do that. They're financially literate. They, you know, whatever. And I'm kind of like, well, why do you work in international development if you believe that people you're trying to support can't actually support themselves? Like, what's the point? Like, right. that's when you should go home. You know what I mean? <laughs> so right. those are really key things. And I, I you know, will you know, we, we will still have to go through that transition, you know, of how we move out and be fully artisan run. Um, but based on like the indicators of what I see, like, I mean, I wouldn't be doing it, this if I didn't believe that were possible. Right. Absolutely. And so what keeps you motivated, Dan? This is, you know, what, what, what keeps you going? I mean, give me some good anecdote maybe of, of how, what kind of life you might've touched or transformed an artisan. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I can kind of give a couple of stories to that. Um, you know, things that really move me. Um, I mean, what primarily motivates me at the end of the day. I mean, it's really kind of two things. And one is, you know, I was um, when I was in Yemen and I worked as a journalist there. I was there during the Arab Spring. Um, you know, so I, I I watched firsthand like a state collapse. You know, and you know, understanding, you know, watching people pour in the streets. You know, as if that you know that was their only option. You know, all the organizations that were there designed to support them weren't. The government itself was actively attacking its own you know, citizens. And so my always, you know, big motivation and, you know, why, you know, starting anew is really to figure out, you know, how do you build resilient communities? You know, how do you enable these communities to kind of dictate the terms of their own future? You know, bend the trajectory of where their lives, you know, for themselves will go, for their kids. That's really important. I think, it's, you know, it's like a, you know, a fundamental human right to be able to have that ability. Um, and that that's kind of what, you know, is important to me. And I kind of always felt that a new, like, I don't have a background in craft, you know, I, my background's in environmental policy. Um, but I've liked working in this space because of that, you know, trying to solve that problem. Um, more anecdotally, you know, it's, you know, you talk to the artisan leaders, you know, we've had journalists come out, talk to them and ask them about, you know, what have they learned, you know, from working on a new, you know, and one of them, you know, is that, you know, that they believe now that problems are fixable, Right. I mean, Morocco is a really fatalistic country where it's kind of like, you know, if anyone's familiar with Morocco, like inshallah culture, where it's just like, you know, if God wills it, it's not really in my hands. Um, right. And so therefore, you know, you you kind of work on a hope and a prayer that like some foreigner, some benevolent foreigner is going to come save you. That's like your strategy, you know, <laughs> and that's not like a good strategy. Like the strategy <laughs> is like figuring out what the problem is and just like, you know, problem solving the shit out of it, you know, and like right. figuring it out. And that's the culture we really want to instill. And so, with, you know, we see that with the artisan team and that's very, you know, motivating. The second thing, and I say this on like, you know, like a podcast, but you know, the second thing that sometimes some of these artists will say was that, you know, one thing they learned after starting a new prior to it, you know, relative to prior to their time on a new, um, is that people in authority aren't always right. Right. So, those are really important lessons. And it's like, you know, you have to understand that to have the ability and the confidence to start shaping your future, right? And so, um, I mean, those are the things that, you know, motivate me and why I want to enable, you know, the artists have the ability to go in and solve these problems. These problems will always evolve. The challenge that a new faces will always be there. There is going to take different forms. I want, you know, the artisans to have that ability and have a fulfilling life. Um, you know, like a fulfilling life and in, in solving those issues. It's not for other people to solve for them. You know what I mean? Well said. Yes, I do. So thank you so much, Dan uh, Driscoll. If and people want to know a little bit more about the Anu, they should go to uh, the Anu, which is A N O U dot com. Correct. Now, is there any other place that they should? I suppose you use the same use the same name for Twitter and all the other social media? Correct. If you just type in a new to Facebook, uh, Instagram, you know, all that you'll find, you'll find us there. Um, I would definitely recommend people take a look at our blog. Um, if like anything that is of interest that I said on this, um, you know, we go into detail on the blog. So there's a lot of really interesting things there that will kind of go and kind of 
tackle the kind of nitty gritty of some of these issues that we work on. So I'd recommend people go there. Um, yeah. And then like our, you know, our spinoff for yarns and wool and things like that, it's called the Atlas wool supply.co. Um, you can find that through a new, so, um, take a look at that as well, but that you'll find everything you need to know, uh, from there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dan, for your time and, uh, best of luck with your way of interacting with the Moroccans and making the artisans <laughs> make a living. Great. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thanks for taking time to talk with us. Yeah, sure. And that concludes this episode of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, go to WanderLearn.com and click on the latest episode. Now, before you go, I just want to ask you for one small favor. Subscribe to the show, share it, review it, and send me lots of money. Seriously, although doing all those things would be extremely helpful, perhaps the best thing you could do would be to become one of my treasured patrons at patreon.com slash F Tapon. F as in Francis, Tapon as my last name, which is T-A-P-O-N. Check out the remarkably generous rewards that I offer there. They are, without a doubt, the best rewards that you can find on Patreon. I'm not kidding. It's no joke. You can get rewards for as little as $1 a month. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.